We don't deserve your love. We're rebellious people. We're unfaithful. We're sinners. Even our righteousness is as filthy rags. And yet you are a faithful God. And yet you are a loving God. And yet you and grace have reached out to us. And you sent your Son to die for us, to bear our sins, our penalty, to give us life. What love is this? Even this morning, as we look to your word, as we look here in Malachi, as you affirm your love to your people, may we be encouraged by your love for us. May you be honored in all that we do this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning we'll be in Malachi, Malachi 1, verses 1 to 5. Last week we finished Galatians, worked our way through the entire book, Law and Grace. And we saw the glorious grace of God. Now we cannot earn God's love. We cannot earn salvation. It's all by grace. It's God who has fully equipped us. He's given us all that we need for salvation and all that we need for sanctification. And there's nothing that we can add to the work that God has done. This morning we turn our attention to Malachi. We start a new series through a new, ver- through a new uh, book, the book of Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. It's four short chapters. And it's unique how it's set up. It's almost like a conversation between God and his people. You'll see some back and forth as we work our way through this book. God will say something and they will respond. G. Campbell Morgan said, I think that none of the messages of the minor prophets fits the present age as exactly as does Malachi. I think you'll find it very practical, very applicable, very challenging. And I pray that God will use it for his glory as we work our way through Malachi. This morning, as I said, we'll look at verses 1 through 5. We'll see God's word as he comes, as the, the, the prophet comes and the prophet speaks, and then we'll see God's love. God starts by affirming his love for his people, as we'll see here in Malachi 1, 1 to 5. I know we already read it, but I'm going to read it again since it's just a short short passage of five verses. Malachi 1, 1 1-5. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved. But Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. 
first thing we see as we turn our attention to Malachi in the very first verse is God's Word. The Word of the Lord. In the first verse we see from, who it's from, who it's to, and by way of whom. Notice it says the burden of the Word of the Lord. It's from God. From the Word of the Lord to who? To Israel. By way of whom? By Malachi, the prophet. We turn to Malachi chapter 1. There's no questioning who is speaking here. There's no question about whose word this is. It's the burden of the word of the Lord. And there's no escaping who it's pointed at. To Israel. To my people. The word of the Lord to His people. To Israel. By whom? By Malachi. And the first thing we see here is God's messenger, Malachi. The name means literally messenger or God's messenger. This is who this prophet is. It's not just his name. It represents who he is. He is God's messenger. Again, pointing to the fact of who this is from. This is not Malachi's message. This is God's message by Malachi. It's the word of the Lord from the messenger of the Lord. There's no confusion here. To ignore the words of Malachi is to ignore the word of the Lord. Notice the unique word here at the beginning, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Burden. We think of a burden, we think of something heavy, a weight, a, a pack that is on your back that holds you back. The word there is the idea of a prophecy or an oracle, but it, 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 it emphasizes the heavy responsibility of this prophecy, of this oracle from God. The heavy responsibility of delivering this message from God. This is not a light task to which Malachi has been called. Delivering this prophecy, this word of the Lord. I don't know if you've ever had to deliver heavy news before. Maybe you've had to do in a position where you have to do a, a death notification or something like that. We are bringing to someone some very bad news. It's heavy. The message that you're bringing, it's a heavy message. Sometimes it's the weight of the news itself that makes it heavy, that makes it a burden. Sometimes it's simply the importance of the message that makes it heavy. You ever been in a position where you're, you're, you're talking to someone and, and, and what you're trying to get them to understand, you, you need them to understand it. The weight of the message is in getting them to get it. You have to understand this. This is important. Just a few weeks ago, the twins had the opportunity, Clinton and Judah, to spend a week in South Carolina with my parents. Um, my dad has, runs his own business. He's always in and out. He's always busy. And so most of the time, they were going to be with my mom. As many of you know, my mom is handicapped. She's very limited in what she can do. She can walk, 
but the muscles in her legs never fully developed. She's not able to do stairs very easily. She can do it with a railing. She's never been able to run. And so my mom is very limited in that sense. The twins are not limited in that sense. <laughs> they run all over the place. And when they were going down there, one of the things that was, Chris and I were a little bit nervous about, besides being separated from them, was that limitation. Especially given the fact that they were going to fly back with my mom. And my dad was just my mom. And I had this picture in my head of them in the airport and the twins seeing something and just taking off. And, and my mom couldn't get after them. And so we sat down with the twins and we, we, we had this conversation with them. And we had to get them to understand you cannot leave Lolly in the airport. You don't, you don't leave her at the store. You, you stay with her. You hold her hand. It, this is of the most importance. Pay attention. There's a burden to that message. I need them to get it. It's of the utmost importance that they understand that they not leave Lolly in the airport. As Malachi comes here and he brings the word of the Lord, there's weight to it. There's a burden here. Both because of the content of the message. It's not necessarily good news that he's going to be bringing them. But also, because of the importance that they hear this, that they heed this, that they understand this. This is the burden of every pastor, of every Bible teacher, of anyone who has ever opened the Word of God to preach it or to teach it. The burden that, that you get this, that you understand this, that this take root in your life because this is the Word of God. The burden is not because you need to understand what I'm saying. The burden is not because they need to understand what Malachi is saying. The burden is because it is the Word of the Lord. I once had a, a friend who was been put in a position of leadership, and those whom he was leading were not much younger than he was. And we were having a conversation. He was saying, I just, I don't feel qualified. Like, who am I to, to teach them, to lead them? And I had to remind him, it's not your words. It's God's Word. You can lead them because you're standing on the foundation of God's Word. The truth is the truth regardless of who speaks it. A two-year-old can speak the truth of God. We've heard 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds stand up here and preach good messages from the Word of God, authoritative messages, because they're not preaching their Word, they're preaching God's Word. That's the burden that Malachi has as he brings us. It's the burden of the Word of the Lord. And the burden that you get this, that you understand this, that this take root, that you heed this. It's God's messenger, Malachi. Secondly, we see God's time. So under God's Word, we see God's messenger. Then we see God's timing in this 
message. As we come to Malachi 1, it's important to understand where in history we are. I love history, and I love timelines. I think it helps to to ground us in history, to understand what's going on. As we come to Malachi, understanding the the history, where we are in time, what's going on, helps to, to bring it all together. It helps us to understand, well, why is it that Israel is struggling with this? Why is it that they have, have, have left God again? Not that it gives an excuse to them, but it helps us to see. I think it helps us to see these same struggles in our own heart, in our own lives. So as we come to Malachi, here's kind of a timeline of where we are in history. Hopefully, you can see that. Not all the numbers made it through. Oh well. We'll go with it. So in 536 BC, we have the return from Babylon under Zerubbabel. We see this in, in Haggai. We've been through Haggai a, a couple times in the last couple years. And you remember, Zerubbabel and Haggai comes back. Zerubbabel is the... the um, governor, and, ha- and Haggai is like the, the, Joshua is the priest, and Haggai is the prophet in this time. And they come back, and in 536, in that general area, they, they return back, the first return from exile. In 535, almost immediately as they get back, they get to work, they lay the foundation of the temple, they're excited, God has brought us back. He's returned us to the land. Let's build this temple. And they get going and they're excited. And then, if you remember in Haggai, opposition arises. In the face of opposition, they back off. And they lose their excitement. Instead of focusing on the temple and building the temple, they start building their own houses. And then they build their houses bigger. And they update their houses. And, and they're making all their, their life really nice. They're ignoring what God has called them to do. They're ignoring the temple. So in 520, around 520 B.C., God sends Haggai. He sends Zechariah. And they come. And they stir the people. They call them back to faithfulness. Back to, to build this temple. Don't you remember 16 years ago, the excitement when you came back? That excitement that you've you've lost, they call them back, build the temple. So they resume, and in 515 B.C., the temple is finished. 458 B.C., around this area, we have the second return from exile under Ezra. I believe the next one is supposed to be 445 B.C. We have the third return under Nehemiah. Then around 430 B.C., we come to Malachi. Around 430 B.C., we come to Malachi. It's important to see this timeline, to understand this timeline. Because between 430 and 515, the temple's finished in 515, and 430 and Haggai, they've already strayed from God again. When you look at that that timeline, anywhere from, from depending on the 
dates anywhere from 80 to 100 years. They're strayed from God. In Haggai 2, verses 6 to 9, it's not that far away. You could turn over there if you'd like. It's just on the other side of Zechariah. Listen to this in Haggai, in Haggai 2, verses 6 to 9. So, so this is around 520 B.C. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Just for context, and where we are in Haggai, they've, they've, they've started building, and Haggai comes again. He gives them another word to continue to encourage them in building. So we come to verse 6, chapter 2. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. Glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. So in 520, they have this promise. God comes and he encourages them as they're building the temple in just a little while. I will do these great works. I will shake the heaven and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations shall come to the desire of all nations and I will fill this temple with glory. Gold and the silver and the glory of this temple will be greater than the former. And so they get excited and they build and they finish this temple and now they're looking for this to come. They're looking for God to come. They're looking for the gold and the silver that is promised, the desire of all nations, for the the Lord of hosts to fill this place. For this temple that they've built to be even greater than the temple of Solomon. What excitement this will bring. And after 10 years, it hasn't come. After 20 years, it hasn't come. They look back at Haggai, and it says a little while. Maybe he means within 50 years. Within 50 years, it hasn't come. 60 years, 70 years, 80 years. These promises of God have not come to pass. They don't see the glory of this temple. The priests are there. They're meeting for these feasts. They're they're doing their sacrifices. They're doing their duty and, and nothing is happening. Where is this glory that you have promised? Where is the prosperity, the gold, and the silver that you have promised? So the problem as we come to Malachi is that they have grown disillusioned. They've grown disillusioned with God. This God who has promised all this stuff and he said in a little while and it's been 80 to 100 years. Where is it? 
They've grown frustrated. They've grown disillusioned. As we work our way through Malachi, we'll see how this works its way out in their everyday worship. They've grown sloppy. Their worship has grown lifeless. They've allowed the circumstances around them, the time that has passed, to determine their view of God. To determine their view of God's promises. So you need to understand, as we come to Malachi, the amount of time that has passed. It directly plays into it. You need to understand their frustrations. Their sin in the book of Malachi does not just come out of nowhere. There's circumstances that lead to that. There's, there's, there's frustrations. There's expectations that they had that God hasn't fulfilled. But the problem, as we'll see, is not with God. It's with them. It's with their expectations. So as we come to Malachi, the message that God brings is this. Repent and return. Repent of your sin and return. Be faithful in your worship. Regardless of how long it takes me to fulfill my word, I will fulfill it. You be faithful. It's a warning to, to get their attention, to call them back to faithfulness. And in just a few generations, they've already fallen away. They're just as bad as they were before the exile. One author pointed out the similarity between Malachi and Revelations 2-3. In Revelation, you may remember, God writes to reveal his thoughts about the churches. He says, this church, and this church, and this church, this I have against you. And as we come to Malachi, it's very similar to that. God comes to his people and he says, this I have against you. He's writing to reveal his thoughts about them, about their worship, about where they are. To grab their attention and to call them back to faithfulness. So that's God's word. And in verse 2, we see God's love. I have loved you, says the Lord. God begins here by affirming his love for his people. I have loved you. Have you ever had a conversation with someone where you come to a point where you, you're, you're confronting them about something? And you come to them and you say, look, I'm saying this because I love you. It's because I, I care for you. That is why I am saying this to you. An intervention or, or something like that where you, where you come to them and you say, I do love you. I do care about you. What I'm about to say, it's not going to be easy. But I love you. And that's why I'm saying it. And that's what God does here at the beginning. He affirms his love for them. I have loved you, says the Lord. But notice their response. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? What brazenness is that? What boldness they must have to question the love of God. You say you love us? I don't see it. 
There's no evidence of it. How do you love me? It's a bold response for a people who have been nothing but unfaithful to make to their faithful God. Our daughter Avery has recently discovered money. She, she loves money. She'll find quarters and pennies and, and grandma will sometimes give her dollar bills and she, she has this little purse that she starts keeping her money in. And she likes to pretend that she's spending it on different things. In fact, on our trip down to uh, the south just a few weeks ago, we stopped at a rest area and Avery took her little purse in and she took a dollar out for each of her brothers and bought every one something at the vending machine. She, just, she loves carrying that purse around. She loves money. There's another thing she's recently started doing. She's recently started saying, but Dad, you never... And there's been a time or two where she's asked, Dad, can I have a dollar? Can I have some money? I'll say, no, Avery, you can't have money. And then she'll say, but Dad, you never give me money. I know she's just three years old and she doesn't understand, but how ridiculous is it for a three-year-old to whom I give everything to? Not one thing does she own that she has not been that she has gotten herself. I completely care for her. Everything she has, I buy for her. Who is she to come to me and say, Dad, you never give me money. Literally everything you have comes from my money, Avery. If it weren't for my money, you wouldn't have anything. And the ridiculousness of that example is nothing compared to the people questioning God's love. He has been nothing but love. He is, is nothing but love. And who are they to stand up and to shake their fist and say, how have you loved us? I don't see it. I don't feel it. Where is it? It's amazing that God does not, in this instant, completely wipe them off the face of the earth. Completely wipe them from history. Who are you to question my love? I have loved you. And they say, in what way have you loved us? But instead of wiping them out, God shows his love, he shows his patience, he shows his grace, and he answers them. He says, first, you want to know how I've loved you? I've loved you because I chose you. Go verse 2 goes on to say, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. I have loved you because I chose you. You didn't seek after me. I sought after you. I chose Jacob. The, the words there, loved and hated, and, and in English, it's, it's almost overly stated. It's not that God literally hates Esau. It's that Jacob is chosen and Esau is not chosen. I have loved you because I chose you. He goes on, not only have I chosen you, but I've blessed you. 
He shows the next several verses. He talks about how, how Esau and his people, Edom, they've, they've gone on. And the struggles that they have had. And, and the implication is, look where they are. Look where you are. You've been blessed. Esau I've hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Edom, like Israel, was, was carried away by Babylon into captivity. And like Israel, in verse 4, even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return. We will rebuild the desolate places. We want to do this. We want to return to our land and to rebuild, to reestablish ourselves. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. I've allowed you to return to your land. I've allowed you to rebuild. I have blessed you in that. Look at your neighbors. Look at them. They were carried away, and they desired to return and to rebuild, and I have not allowed it. They may build, but I will throw down again. It's very similar to what God says in Haggai. In the first chapter of Haggai, the people are there and they're, they, they, they've started, they've forgotten about the temple and they're building their own houses. And God comes to them and he says, look, you wonder why your crops are failing? You wonder why your, your buildings are crumbling while nothing is going well? It's because you've not obeyed me. But Edom doesn't even have that choice. They don't even have a promise of prosperity if they obey. They simply have this. You will not rebuild. They shall be called the territory of the wicked. And the people against whom the world, the, the Lord will have indignation forever. That's them. That's their end. Look at you. I've returned you to your land. I've, I've given it back to you. I've given you everything you need to, to rebuild, to reestablish yourselves. I chose you. I blessed you. Who are you to question my love? As you come to verse 5, God reaffirms his promise. I will do what I have promised. I'm not going to do it in your time, but I'm going to do it. Trust me. Verse 5, he says, your eyes will see. You will say. It is sure. It will happen. You will see this and you will say this. The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. What I have in plan is greater than you can even imagine. I don't want to just have you prosper I'm going to be magnified beyond the border of Israel in the world. You can't imagine what I am doing, what I am building, what I'm accomplishing. You have this little narrow view, this little narrow idea of what you think I'm going to do and of when you think I need to do it in. And on that, you are accusing me of not loving you. But you will see. And you will say, the Lord is magnified beyond the borders of Israel. I will keep my word. I will do what I have promised, and I will be glorified in the world. The problem is here, 
As we come to Malachi, the problem is that they have chosen to focus on what God hasn't done rather than what God has done. They're looking at what they want God to do and when they want God to do it. And because God hasn't met their missed place expectations, they're frustrated at God. And when you start at the wrong place, you're going to end at the wrong place. By focusing on what God hasn't done, they're frustrated by what God hasn't done instead of focusing on what God has done. Look at what I've done. I chose you. I've equipped you. I've put you back in the land. I've blessed you. Look at what I have done. I think the challenge for us this morning is along those same lines. Are you looking at what God hasn't done or are you looking at what God has done? What expectations do you have in your life that God hasn't met that has has caused you to become frustrated with God? Maybe it's health. Maybe it's an expectation that I would have good health and God hasn't given me that and I am tired of this struggle. I am tired of this, God. Where are you? Are you good? Do you love me? Why haven't you given me good health? He never promised you good health. Don't look at what God hasn't given you. Look at what he has given you. Maybe it's money. Maybe you're looking, you're saying, I am tired of struggling paycheck to paycheck. I am tired of not having a job. Where are you, God? Do you love me? Do you care about me? He never promised those things. Look to what God has given you, not what he hasn't given you. Don't look to your circumstances. Look to God. Just this past Wednesday night, we were in Psalm 13, and it's almost the exact opposite of Malachi. In Psalm 13, David starts, and he is wondering, Where are you, Lord? How long? Have you abandoned me? Have you left me? As he comes to the end of the psalm, instead of focusing on his situation, on his circumstances, he says, but I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. See, David and Malachi are starting, and the, people, the Israelites under Malachi's uh, ministry are starting in the same place. They're frustrated. Circumstances in life aren't exactly what they expected. For David, he felt like God has abandoned them. For the people on, under Malachi's ministry, they feel like, like God doesn't love them. But look at the extreme difference of conclusions that they come to. The people under Malachi's ministry, they come to this conclusion. God doesn't love us. Where are you? Do you even care? I see no evidence of your love. Yet David in Psalm 13 comes to this conclusion. I will trust in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Because David is not focusing on his circumstances. He's focusing on God. And when you start in the right place, you end in the right place. 
So my question to you this morning as we start our study through this book, what are you looking to? Are you focusing on what God hasn't done? On the expectations that you have that God hasn't met? Or are you focusing on what God has done? On who God says, I am and this I will do. We're going to close by singing the song, It Is Well With My Soul. It's number 417 in your hymnal. Many of you know, may, may know the story behind this song. song. The writer, Horatio Spafford, was a businessman in Chicago. And the fire hit. And he had business to take care of. And so he sent his family ahead of him over the water. They were going on a trip to England. On the way over, the, trip, the, the ship sinks and his daughters all die. His wife alone survives. And so a few days later, when he's on his way over to meet his wife, and he's just been devastated, and he passes over the, the, the place where the ship has gone down, where, where God has chosen to call his daughters home. Instead of cursing God, Instead of questioning God, he writes these words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Verse 2, Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. His hope was not in his circumstances. His hope was in God. And you come to verse 3, and, and this is what it's all anchored on. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. That's my hope. He doesn't question God's love because of what God has taken from him. He glories in God's love because of who God is and what God has given him. As we said Wednesday, as we looked at Psalm 13, if you have nothing else to glory in, you can glory in your salvation. What more do we need? God is good.